Welcome to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog guardians. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm a certified professional dog trainer and I take my 10 years of training experience and I share easy to implement dog training advice with an emphasis on kindness and compassion. Welcome. I'm so excited to share more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. This episode is unique, and it's going to be really, really special. And I have four wonderful trainers with me today. And we are going to talk all about how we define what we do and kind of give you maybe some insights that you didn't think about when it came to being a dog trainer. So without further ado, I'm going to have everybody just kind of introduce themselves so you all can get a feel for their voices and who they are. So let's see here. Jenna, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I'm Jenna Slutsky. I'm a KPA CTP and UWAAB. I'm currently in Nashville, Tennessee, working with the team at Instinct Dog Behavior and Training and have been doing this for about five years here. I specialize in puppy development and any dogs who experience barky lungy behavior and offer in-home virtual coaching along with homeschool services for anyone that's in the Nashville area. And I am dog mom to three crazy dogs. Uh, My oldest, Ichabod Dane, is nine years old and a great Dane. Um, I've got Rosie, who's a six-year-old pit bull terrier. And I've got Lucy, who we just found out is a pit bull Boston terrier mix. Oh, my God. What a trio you have. What a trio. Amazing. Okay, Jenna, thank you so much for being here. Everyone, you may remember Jenna. She has been a podcast guest before. Okay, so um, let's see here. San, you want to go next? Yeah, sure. My name is San, and I'm the owner of Rough Roll Academy. I also am a KPA CPT, and I've been training for the past six years. Um, I was certified probably about like two years ago, so I like to say I'm formally trained um, these past two years. And I am located in Southern California, Los Angeles. I like to specialize in fear and aggression. And uh, the training services I offer is anywhere, anything in the realms of private training, uh, where I do homeschooling or even day training where the dogs come to me. I also do offer board and train. My, uh, my heart goes out to helping uh, low-income families within the Los Angeles area because training is not always accessible. So I do my best in terms of offering uh, flat rate training. So not just um, per the hour, but, but per um, bi-weekly basis. So uh, I also have two beautiful dogs. I, I have um, a nine-year-old uh, American Pitbull Terrier. Her name is Molly. And she's been with me at the start of my very business. So I feel like she's, she's the dog that kind of grew with my business. And I have Shadow, who is my uh, four-year-old Alaskan Klikai. And he's the dog that comes around with me to help, um, help me uh, desensitize certain dogs that have fear and aggression concerns. So I'm very, um, very blessed to be living with them. Oh my God. It's so special when the dogs grow with us in our training journey and our businesses the best. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, Miranda. Hello, I'm Miranda. I am a CPDT and a CBCC. I am also 
finishing my master's in applied animal behavior through Virginia Tech. So everybody wish me the best of luck in doing my research. I'll see you in 12 years. Um, (laughs) I run a nonprofit in Austin, Texas called Every Dog Behavior and Training. We are all about trying to make training accessible for the folks who typically are not able to get it, whether for financial reasons or others. Um, And I do primarily private training. Um, I do a lot of virtual and some in person. I do some classes as well, but I heavily specialize in our behavior dogs. So fear, anxiety, stress, aggression, um, pretty much all the other things. I don't get to spend much time, nor do I know a whole lot about teaching really fun, cool behaviors. Most of my work is trying to get dogs to stop biting others or people. Um, So mostly private training, love virtual training. And my dog is Nina and she is a perfect, but very disorderly dog. She is um, a four-year-old black and white moo cow pity. um, And she's not very well behaved, but she's a big snuggler. So she's good in my book. You know what? I like an unruly dog. I really yeah, do. Yeah, she I is prefer- very poorly trained, and I take full responsibility for that. <laughs> oh, my God. Amazing. Okay, and last but not least, Dawn. Tell everyone. Yeah, hi. I love those intros, and I like kind of want to pick your brains about different things. Um, uh, my name is Dawn. I'm also a Karen Pryor Academy Certified Training Partner, and I've got a you know, few other courses and certificates beyond that. Um, I have a business called Running Dogs Training and Behavior, and uh, similar to, to what these guys have described as well, my focus is typically on private behavior mod stuff. I don't do a lot of uh, basic obedience or tricks and whatnot. Um, I do like some puppy stuff. I feel like that's sometimes my little relief. I can just hang out with some puppies, and it's a nice balance to some of the more challenging cases. But I would say that uh, most of my services, uh, though I do do virtual consults, I also do a lot of in-person work. And it's usually about trying to address the, the barky, lungy ones, the, the, the ones that want to bite and stuff. Um, my hope is to just basically make uh, the world a little bit easier for those dogs and their people to just get around the world and enjoy themselves as much as possible. And um, yeah, so not too focused on a lot of the, uh, the, the, the tricks and skills, but mostly just kind of uh, getting some of those behaviors to a place where we can navigate the world more comfortably. Amazing. Okay. And tell everyone about your boy. Oh my goodness. And the dogs. Okay. So, and then you got in Tennessee is, uh, you know, the love of my life. He, uh, we just had our 10th gotcha day. So he is 11 years old now. Um, he's just, uh, just an all-star. We've done a ton of fun stuff together. We were a, a dog sledding duo, uh, in the, in the Rocky mountains for a bit. He's a certified therapy dog. He's been my decoy guy for a long time. We've done, um, even educational stuff in, um, uh, in elementary schools where we've learned about like dog safety and consent and things like that. It was pretty neat doing a consent-based storytelling exercises about his journey from where he started to where he is. Um, I also live with another kind of husky mutt uh, named Towton and um, sleeping beside me right now is my uh, 17-year-old foster dog <laughs> named Cyrano who like, I don't know, he thinks he's like five or six, but yeah. <laughs> right. And we're going to let him believe that. We're going to let him believe that. Oh my God. Everyone. I'm so excited that you all are here. I know that some of you listening already know some of um, these wonderful trainers. If you don't be sure to check out the show notes, we've got links so you can connect with all of them outside of this. Okay. So everyone, I want to just hear from each of you, like what label are you comfortable with? Like what label do you like gravitate towards to like describe the way you train? I know there's so many labels. I know some people are comfortable with some things and not. So Jenna, what about you? Like, what are you most comfortable as far as like a label, as far as like the training that you do? Sure. I think, 
I think where I've at least rested the longest with the idea is coaching. Um, I think it's easier to kind of uh, modify guardians' expectations when they hear I'm there to coach them how to train their dog, as opposed to me going in as I am the trainer for your dog. Um, it just kind of helps with that language barrier that I think can get there sometimes. Oh my God. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So, um, Sam, what about you? I like to call myself an, an animal coach, um, just to stay away from, from, from terms like force-free and positive. I, I think, uh, eventually we can do our work in educating the, the greater public. What are some, uh, of the more, um, preferred methods of working with animals and, I find that I, if I come myself as a coach, just like what Janet was mentioning, it's a lot easier to uh, be away from the space of of being looked at as a trainer. So, so it gets more involvement from from the people that you're actually helping. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, Miranda, what about you? I'm really torn on this one because I feel like the audience matters a lot. Like there are definitely times where if you're if you're at a party and somebody asks what you do for work, I'm probably going to say dog dog trainer, because that's the, the most commonly known thing. But the one that probably resonates the most for me is behavior consultant, just because it's, I, I love that idea of coaching. I do feel like there's an element of therapy in what we do sometimes dealing with people who are having really, really difficult times with their dogs. Um, but for me, it's that idea of focusing on behavior versus training, which has kind of this implication of like, we're going to do training a lot of what we do is not training when we work in behavior and this idea of kind of consulting in the way that it feels like we're an outside force that's trying to help you as the humans um, get what you need. Um, I'm not really sure that it's the best label, but it's the best of the ones that I've thought about so far. And I quite frankly have not spent enough time thinking about this one. And so now I'm going to agonize over it when I'm supposed to be sleeping. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, oh my God. I appreciate okay, that. Don, Don, what about you? What do yeah, you like to call yourself? Similarly, similarly, I, I tend to go for behavior consultant. But yeah, if you're like, you know, meeting some friends and they're like, oh, what do you do? It's like, oh, I'm a dog behavior consultant, which is basically like a dog trainer who da 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 da. You know, it's kind of it's not a great label because it needs a description. Um, but it is one that I'm I'm comfortable with. Um, I do like coaching a lot as well because I think that's actually a pretty like apt description of, of I think what we functionally do or what I functionally do. Um, and uh, and you know, I'm still kind of like waving my force free flag it hasn't become like a poison (laughs) thing for me at this point um I do feel like you know it's a bit of a semantic issue and people can get real real mad at it but it it still it still makes sense to me and I I feel like it is uh you know still effective in in communicating to like a big chunk of people out there what it is that I do those who are sort of savvy to some of the labels um but yeah I think behavior consultant Yeah. And like, I mean, I seriously, I resonate with everything you all said, right? Like, I think that there's so much like variation in how people perceive what we do. But personally, I prefer being a coach because I feel like I have a lot of behavior knowledge. But in my experience, I feel like so much of my work is not like flexing like my behavior knowledge. Like, I feel like so much of my work is like helping my clients understand their dogs and get rid of some of the like unrealistic expectations and that's why I like the term coach because it's like so focused on like obviously I can train dogs obviously I understand behavior we all do but over the last 10 years I feel like I do way more 
coaching of human behavior than I do any like behavior modification with dogs. Right. Okay. So I want to hear from you guys on this. Like, do you feel like that's something that you have to help your clients with like pretty frequently, like adjusting expectations and like shifting their perspective of like what is important, what needs to be done versus like what you're seeing and what you think is important. Jenna, go ahead. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I think, I think it really is the majority of, I shouldn't say the majority. I should say it's the foundation work of the majority of my clients. At least I think they go into our consultation with their own ideologies, their own theories, their own learning history when it comes to dogs. And when we do roll out with, you know, what is modern day dog training, where it's welfare centered and kind of dropping these stereotypes, I'm throwing them a lot of unintentional curveballs and challenging them to think about things differently than they have before. Um, and I think as, as soon as they see that, what we're doing is effective and that these small changes in the way that they're thinking and the way that they're interacting with their dogs, I think those small changes and this high success rate with those small changes gets them on board pretty immediately. Um, But it can be challenging to break through, um, you know, that initial kind of barrier, that, that knowledge that we are so confident that we know in those moments. <laughs> right. Okay. San, San, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you because I know in LA, it's a very dominant, aversive based, like training community. Is that accurate? Yeah. Well, let's just say that there's not as many uh, certified trainers that, that do uh, positive reinforcement and force free methods. So I guess in that regard, you, I can say that, um, but yeah, I, I just feel like everyone's trying to do their best, regardless of what climate they are, they are. And I welcome people in terms of their ideology, in terms of how they see dogs. And then from there, I just try to unpack what is uh, reasonable to, to make the most out of their relationship with their dogs. I try to like filter away from just the labels of what's this and what's that, and just really direct the client to what what is the main focus to in terms of how I can get to my goal or um, see. And I just paint the picture of what is happening and what we can really do to provide them a practical solution. Uh, the science behind the behaviors is so important. I feel like the buy-in from just giving them a straight answer without really too much forethought is a really good place to start. And then I, I like to try to unpack from that point on. Um, but that's what I feel like, um, just like with most uh, work that that is done when you first come over to the household or when you first meet them on Zoom. And um, I think with the MPT piece in terms of being a, a forestry trainer really helps people to, to understand that we're only here to give information to help you out. And we're, we want to make sure that you're, ha- you're as happy as you uh, want to live your life that you're envisioning with your dog. So, I mean, yeah, I like to try to talk about training without talking about training. So it's more related to the people and kind of kind of take things from there. Oh, my God. Yes, that's <laughs> so beautifully said. Talk about training without actually talking about training. Because I think that something that I think we all probably have fallen victim to in our careers, right, is like you get this like wealth of knowledge and you just are like, oh, my God, there's all these people who still think like X, Y or Z. And you want to just be like, no, that isn't true. And I mean, there's variation in my clients, but I think for the most part, people who come to me and don't know me, right, like they don't follow me on social media, they don't know the podcast 
they do not give a shit what I have to say about force-free training or dominance not being real. Like, that's not relevant. And I think that, you know, I think that that's something, like, early on in my career that I really kind of got a crash course in, like, Rachel, it's always your time, girl. Like, that doesn't matter. That's not important to them, right? Okay, Miranda, what about you? Like, tell us a little bit more of that transition versus, like, working with people in real life. Yeah, no, I think there's, I think Sam brought up a, a really good point about how we kind of meet the difference between what we think they need and what they need. You know, I have clients that come to me for potty training issues, and then I find out the dog is resource guarding like crazy in the home, but that's not actually a big problem for them. And so there are times where it's reframing what I think is the problem. There are other times where they think one thing is the problem and we actually have to address something else in order to get them success. But I think that's a place where understanding kind of that partnership between a trainer and, and their person to figure out like, how do we get your needs met? And what are those needs actually? Um, I think for me, one of the biggest pieces is I'm a huge fan of analogies and anthropomorphism. And I think both of them can get a bad rap, but one of my favorite things when talking about training is to compare it to someone who says like, I'm a teacher, you know, saying I'm a dog trainer, like saying you're a teacher could mean a zillion things. Like, are you a 12th grade math teacher who teaches calculus, right? Are you a third grade teacher who has to teach everything to third graders, right? Are you a paraeducator who is specifically helping a certain subset of your students succeed in the classroom? Are you a school counselor? Like those, those people all do different things. They all do a lot of coaching, but I think once you start to explain that, people start to understand that as dog trainers, we all hold some of the same kinds of roles. And so I think that's one of my one of my favorite ways to help people kind of bridge that gap in either trying to find the right dog behavior professional for them or figuring out what they need is kind of using that analogy to help them understand that it's not just I come in and I fix your dog. I am not a math coach for seventh graders. Like that is not my specialty. I'm not going to come and teach your child math. I am more of the therapist who's going to say, why do you keep hitting your brother? And how can we make it so you don't want to hit your brother? Right. That's obviously with some, some major caveats, but once you start explaining these things, the anthropomorphism and the analogies can help people kind of understand the variety and things we expect um, and understand how that might be the case with the dog world as well. Wow. Yeah, no, that's super beautifully put. Okay. Don, what about you from your perspective? What's the question that we're answering again? <laughs> we're answering. Well, I'm so absorbed in these answers. I'm like, what, wait a minute. What are we... <laughs> Okay, so basically how we show up for our clients and we can kind of explain to them, right? Like, this is what we're going to do. This is how I can help you. And shifting their maybe wildly unrealistic or maybe um, not in the best interest of the human or the dog, right? right? Like how you kind of navigate that, right? Because, you know, I think we all get really spoiled with amazing people who are already like, yes, positive reinforcement, like Caesar Milan doesn't know anything. And that's really cool. But that's not everybody that we work with. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I I remember now when we were talking about sort of a how do we kind of work with people and, and uh, adjust expectations? Well, and, and it is a huge part of the job, right? Like I think sometimes we really need to do some, some, some foundation work to just kind of 
reframe like what we're seeing and then and what we're going to do about it because sometimes we're kind of like in the wrong conversation to begin with and I, I love what, how you guys have responded I love using like as simple language as I as I can as possible like I you know I like a lot of like hey when bad things show up and good things consistently follow bad things become good things you know like just trying to break down uh, you know counter conditioning into like the simplest of sort of matters and uh and also to what Miranda said about uh you know like anthropomorphizing I I feel like I probably do that a good bit as well but then sometimes I even wonder about like what that even if it even applies in some situations because we just keep learning so much about like the emotional lives of animals like there's just so much that's relatable that I think has been under that banner for a while that we're like it's just not that anthropomorphic to 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 know that you know they're gonna have good feelings and bad things bad feelings about things and and how we can sort of work with those and how some of our sort of human focused descriptions might actually be great explanations great analogies and not even be that anthropomorphic uh you know i think a lot of like harm's been done under the like anthropomorphic thing there's been a lot of like a what is it anthropo denial you know where we're like actually saying like no animals don't even feel pain you know you're like are you kidding me like this is a this is wild so there is you know the whole dog behavior you know i think we can you know thank our palaces in milan for like making this weird context that we live in right now where like dog training has become kind of entertainment and wrapped around like ideas of celebrity and there's a lot of um just prolific notions of what it is to like what a dog is and what behavior means and and how we sort of address it it's pretty it's pretty wild out there so I think a lot of times we need to kind of bring in our clients and understand that they could be coming from like a wide range of sort of foundations and and help them to see it in more simple terms and I I think sometimes one one of my favorite things is is giving people permission to believe what they intuitively believed that was in contrast to what they've learned. And they're like, oh, thank God. I always thought that that was true. And I just, I thought that I, you know, what do I know? I'm not the expert. And you can say like, no, like it's definitely not an alpha thing. Don't worry about it. And that, that relief, you know, is, is quite reinforcing to me. <laughs> yeah, no. And I so agree. Right. Like, and I think that early on in my career, right. So I've been at this for 10 years. So I feel like early on in my career, there was a little bit more of a, like when I showed up, my clients were like, cool. So she's going to like make the dog do things and they're going to like walk in a heel. But I feel like over the last, like, especially five years, I feel like there's been like much more of a transition to people understanding, like we get to love and appreciate our dogs for who they are. We don't have to like feel bad about the fact that they sleep in the bed. We don't have to feel bad that the dog walks in front of us. Right. And I think that that's so much why I like to call myself a coach, because that's what I want to do. I want to come in and be like, even sharing food from the table with your dog, like brilliant. You love it. The dog loves it. It's not causing any problems. Don't stop that. Right. Like I think that there's this overarching, like, I guess ego is probably the best way to put it. And like, you know, the dog training industry at large that is about making people like the bully to their own dogs and being like, you can't make them do that. They're trying to undermine you. They're trying to make you look dumb. And I just, it's so toxic and it's just so heartbreaking to see people fall victim to that and feel like their dog is out to get them. Yes, Don, please. I feel like one thing that we see a lot of is just like the, 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 the sort of like moralistic perspective on like behaviors, you know, and I think it's like such a relief when people can kind of 
oh, just like let go of that. Like it's not good or bad or whatever. It's just like, this is what's worked for this dog, you know? And we're just going to show them that there's another thing that works, you know, when we can feel a little bit less like, uh, I think I think it allows us to kind of drop like feelings of things being kind of uh, adversarial or, um, you know, like they're not trying to get the best of you. They're not out to spite you and so on and so on. And, and uh, we're, I think, maybe a little like innately kind of like inclined to sort of interpret things like that. But I also think the whole culture around the work that we do, or at least in the, the more popular sort of spheres is, is, is encouraging us also to, to think about behavior in this way. And I think it's a, it's a huge relief uh, for a lot of people to be able to let go of it and just think about it in a slightly more simple, realistic, objective kind of way and not so like, yeah, good and bad. Yeah. Miranda. Yeah. I think, I think that idea of the relief is so huge. And I, I want to validate that there are a lot of kinds of expectations and a lot of cultural norms around dogs, regardless of which one we subscribe to. So we have the folks that believe that they need to be the alpha and they feel bad because they're not tough enough to like kick the dog out of bed. Right. And then we have the people who are so worried about being force free and not creating any frustration and not doing anything that they're not leaving their house and they're feeling guilty constantly because, you know, something happened, there was a noise and it scared their dog and they feel like it's their fault. Right. We have a lot of people who have what I like to call the white picket fence model of dogs where they believe that their dog should go to the dog park, you know, every day and get walked three times a day and go to the patio bar with them and love all other dogs and people. And then they find that their dog isn't that. And so I feel like one of the biggest skills that we have, especially when we work with dogs that have behavior issues, but even, you know, when we work with puppies is to help people recognize their dog's individual needs and their family's individual needs versus the idea of what they think their family and dog should be, whatever system that might be. There's a lot of expectations that people have and being able to acknowledge that that's not going to happen for, for you, for whatever reason that you can be your own individual and not meet certain expectations you previously had, I think is really tough for a lot of people. That is a very hard moment, but I get a lot of people coming back and saying it was such a relief to know that I wasn't failing my dog just because we weren't doing it this way and we can do it a different way. Yeah. And I feel like shifting the human's perspective, like of their dog's behavior instead of making their dog's behavior their fault a reflection of who they are as a human being right like I feel like when we can start there the rest just kind of falls into place really nicely right when we're like it's not your fault that your dog is like this right like it is okay but that doesn't mean we can't do things we can empower you we can empower the dog we can change things here um but yeah I think that there's so much shame and worthiness tied into our dog's behavior and I find that like that just time and time again is so much of my work is like helping people understand that like this isn't on you right like it doesn't reflect poorly on you who fucking cares what Joe Schmo over there thinks of you and your dog it doesn't matter that doesn't matter what really matters is that you're here in this moment right now with your dog celebrate that, appreciate that instead of worrying what's going on around you. And Jenna, I know that this is something you're really good at, right? Because I've met you in real life, sister. It's that confidence, right? And I think that that's something that we can share. We can give to our clients, right? Like that confidence to be like, yeah, I just let the dog walk ahead of me. Like, yeah, they stop and sniff for like three minutes sometimes. And we just let that be. Do you want to speak to that a little bit, Jenna? Sure. Well, one of the things that I 
I love sharing with the majority of my clients is uh, Ichabod aside, and I credit that only to the fact that he is a nine-year-old potato um, mm-hmm. at this point. But when it comes to Lucy and Rosie, I make the loving, uh, you know, observation of, hey, the cobbler's children have no shoes here, <laughs> you know, and I kind of love them more for that. I love myself a little more for that too, and that. You know, there's plenty of things that I want to work on that we have been working on and goals, but none of them really revolve around those, you know, the basic obedience umbrella. Um, I don't need them to sit down, stay for me. You know, I don't need them to walk next to me on leash. I want them to explore. You know, for me, I'm looking at prioritizing life-saving behaviors and that's usually how I cater to like my, my puppy development Uh, program is really taking a back seat. And I think when I tell my clients, hi, we're not going to teach your dog to sit or lay down or do all of these things that were on your list. Um, And instead, I'm really going to try and throw you into making sure we're building a confidence, like dog that feels safe in these situations and we can plug in the rest later. Um, But it's, I think it's scary Um, For a lot of people and having someone to come in and just say, hi, this is what we're doing. You know, I think the other thing for me is also I I typically ask the question, um, not necessarily uh, who am I stealing from here? Hannah Brannigan, WTF, Um, you know, what's the function? But I kind of more plug in, okay, you really wanted to teach your dog to sit or see this with my Barky Lunchy clients too, right? They want to plug in a sit behavior while dogs pass. And I kind of ask them like, what's the function of this for you? What are we accomplishing? Is it just because we're not going to have a Barky Lunchy episode if we're seated? Um, you know, okay, if, if the answer is yes, and they have success with that, then where can I actually make it easier? What if we don't ask your dog to sit? What if I told you they can stand here or keep walking even, you know, what you're there to walk with your dog and do. What if I told you we can keep doing that, not have to worry about the sit and save you a good, you know, several months of frustration based training to yourself. Like I think going in there with simple, clear, effective, but easy exercises is kind of that way to start building my client confidence. And they're like, oh my gosh, I just got an easy win because my dog got an easy win. And once they start to feel safe again, we start to see the same things we see with our dog as they start to offer new behaviors and they start to get a little goofy and silly and have fun with things. And it's really great to see. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things too, that like, I feel like early in my career, I kind of struggled with this because I'm like, I'm a fucking dog trainer. They paid me. Like we should teach them things, right? Like they should know behaviors, right? But I think it's one of those things that like, as I matured as a a trainer and obviously I grew as a human being, it made it so much easier for me to connect with the right people. So I didn't feel obligated that I felt like I had to teach them like X, Y, or Z, right? So I want to hear from all of you on that. Like early training versus like now training. Like, what do you feel like something you kind of struggled with, but you kind of like come into your own with? I think when I was, when I was becoming a trainer, I was so excited about the science and so excited about learning the things that I didn't realize how much I could just lean into my human skills. Um, I think I thought I needed to be a lot better with mechanics than I was, or than I am now. 
I tried to teach my dog the other night to do like the pause cross while laying down. And look, I like, I know how to do this, but I'm really impatient and I don't shape well. And I just like, it's not my thing. I'm really good at coaching clients through dealing with major aggressive episodes and, and how to manage things in their homes. Right. And so I think there was a time where I was really worried about that. I think one of the other things I wish I could go back and tell myself is that when I first started training, I was working with exclusively with shelter dogs. And, um, I thought I was really bad at training because things were hard. And I was like, man, it's hard to get these dogs to like do any of the things. And then I started teaching puppy classes and was like, oh, I do know how to train things. Like (laughs) these things work. The puppies learn the things like it's a miracle. And so I think, I think there was a lot of fear about, you know, me as a trainer, again, based on the idea of me getting the dog to do things. And there's certainly like, there's an aspect of my training where I need to be able to teach dogs to do things. Right. But with a lot of what I'm doing now, I think the piece that I've leaned into a lot more is that, you know, the, the human aspect of it and supporting the humans in the intensely emotional work that a lot of times they're going through, because it's one thing to talk about, you know, counter conditioning for humans and desensitization, but it's totally or sorry for dogs, but it's totally different when you also have humans who are fearful and stressed. Um, and I, I think I overly weighted or overly uh, thought of myself as a trainer based on how well I could get a dog to do things, especially with a dog who was in a shelter environment and was not capable of focusing on what I wanted to do anyway. Um, so my expectations have shifted a lot more towards humans and also towards thinking more about the things that I can and cannot impact. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. And it's so true, right? Like, I think a lot of us struggle with that, right? Like social media is brilliant, but sometimes when I see freaking Kiko pup, like, look at you, you tie your dog to do another complex trick. Like I'm a terrible trainer. I know nothing, but that doesn't highlight my particular skill set that maybe isn't that, you know what I mean? I love that so much, Miranda. You put it so well. Um, Sam, what about you? Early trainer now, how have you kind of changed? Yeah, I think uh, I totally resonate with Miranda in terms of what she was saying about um, training mechanics. For the longest time, I thought I had to add the most um, precise uh, timing and shaping skills to, to, to do this kind of work. And even though you learn a, a more deeper palette of how to just make training, training more practical, bringing it outside, there's always that human element of unpacking all of that and explaining to people in a ways where you don't have to teach them to be a dog trainer. So by me focusing on the um, trying to be a better dog trainer instead of being a better uh, animal consultant, I end up realizing that, hey, I'm, I, I end up eventually having to revisit the human component anyway. So um, but a lot of the science behind what we do with um, teaching dogs what to do and changing how they feel, I feel like that's directly applied to how we can coach our people or coach our human learners through um, the airless learning that we, we try to practice with with our dogs. So um, in some yeah. way or another, it, it, it does come back full circle, but I, I totally agree in terms of us having this mantra that dog training is about uh, what we can do with the dogs instead of what we can do with the people. Yeah, because I mean, I was never an effective trainer until I was like, you're good with people. Tell the people what you need them to do. It doesn't matter. Your client doesn't care. Like if your dog could do 30 tricks, that doesn't solve their problem. Right? <laughs> like yeah. that actually doesn't make anything better. Okay, Don, what about you? 
Yeah, I, I think I, I mean, I think KPA kind of got me off in a funny start where I was like, okay, I'm like, you know, six months deep, just finished, got like, you know, my, I, I feel like, you know, my, my mechanics, my timing were just like as sharp as they ever were. And then the following six months, I was like, all I'm trying to reduce, all I'm trying to do is reduce everything that I know into like the simplest little equation, like see that, do this and repeat, you know, and, and it really had like nothing to do with, with shaping very much or having like, you know, doing anything, you know, unusual with some, some crazy shaping plan. Um, yeah. So I, I think it, it really, I just want to like echo a lot of what you guys have said about there just being such an enormous, like human interactive quality to all of this, because we are supporting them. The, the training stuff that we need to kind of transfer to them is often pretty simple. You know, it's not the most complex things. It's just kind of, can you see the environment, understand what your dog is sensitive to? Can we kind of intervene at strategic times with a really simple exercise and repeat that a lot? And, and that's from a training perspective, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty basic. If you can do it with good timing, that's great, but you don't need to get too much more layered with that. You know, we don't necessarily need to get into like distance, duration, distractions, you know, fluency and and so on. Like it's, it, it, that's like a whole other field that I started to realize I, I have like this training in that direction. And I, don't kind of give a shit about it. <laughs> I, I like, I'm, I'm just, I'm not a hobbyist trainer. I'm not spending my time training skills, going to doing some agility thing. I, I kind of want to get into like some scent work stuff. Cause that seems like just so tuned into like a dog's like deepest kind of skill set. Natural that's pretty, instincts, right? Yeah, totally. yeah. So I think that's pretty neat, but I feel like that's kind of where I'm going to explore more of my like dog trainer sort of side of things. Um, but me personally, I like, I just kind of want to go on a canoe trip with my dog. I want to go on a hike. I want to, you know, you're out there hiking all the time. Like that's, and, and, and I'm like, you don't have to be into that, but like, what do you want to do with your dog? And is there something that's getting in the way of that? And can I help to fix that sort of thing a little bit? Like, can we make that so that you can do this enjoyable thing together um, without worrying about this or that? Then that's sort of, you know, that's really my goal. Uh, I think a big shift though that happened to me from like early days to mid days to kind of current time was um, recognizing how um, I was like totally bought in. I was like fully, I'm all, I'm all force free, rewards based, et cetera. But I still kept finding, bumping up against these times where I would get a little uncomfortable with being more generous with reinforcement, whether it was like food and value or opportunities or enrichment or whatever it was, there was still some like residual stuff in there that I was continuing to shed. And I probably still am, where I was feeling like a little bit stingy and in, in the last couple of years of my my career I guess I've been trying to really just embrace being more uh more generous I feel like that's been one of the bigger arcs from early days to now is saying like hey like I can be generous with opportunities I can surprise my dog with some like wild amazing treats from some time it brings them a lot of joy I can also be a little strategic about it and it really sharpens those behaviors but it's more about a you know, just enjoying the time with your dogs and the training is just a vehicle to kind of get there. I've sometimes felt like, uh, I mean, for a long time, I've kind of been like, do I even like call myself a dog trainer? Like, is that how I, a label that feels like it even suits me? And even with my business, I feel like what I do is almost more of a, it's more of like a care-based service that I provide than really like a, like a training. And I, you know, you can interpret training in a whole lot of ways, but my own interpretation doesn't really describe what I do very well. Yeah. Right. Oh my God. No. And I, I resonate with that so much, right? Like, I feel like, especially when I first started, like as a, a female trainer 10 years ago, I felt like I had to be a little bit more like, no, no, no. Like, let's not overly feed the dog. Like, come on, let's have them do more things. Whew, what a relief. 
that that is not something I have to worry about anymore. Okay, Jenna, what about you? So tell everyone, did you, were you, you were, you got certified through KPA later in your career, right? Not in the beginning. No, it was the beginning. Okay. No, I worked in job daycare and boarding for 10 years and then was like, Hey, I need to be on the proactive side of this. (laughs) Um, and luckily my, you know, one, one of my bosses now is the one who I ended up meeting up with. And she goes, Hey, I'd love to bring you on for an internship. Let's get you through KPA. And she just, thank goodness it was her. And she just pushed me in the right direction. But I mean, looking back, to baby trainer me, I first want to apologize to every single one of my clients for their follow-up emails. Um, I think that was my biggest learning curve from then to now. Uh, looking back, I mean, I would send them, I would send them pages, pages yeah. of yeah, of like here's you know here's what counter conditioning is, here's this classical conditioning is, this is what we're doing, and here's like here's the why and the science behind literally everything. It probably took me a year to figure out that, like, they don't fucking care. <laughs> like, people are reading those emails. Right. <laughs> like, no wonder they're not responding. No wonder they're not doing the homework because you have to go through six pages to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think as far as my, like, most improved thing, it's by far my follow-up services as far as, like, here's your assignments. If you have questions, let me know, please. Like being able to just send that out. And what do you know? My guardian compliance goes up 80% when I keep it simple. Um, but I mean, generally to, to echo what everyone else was saying of, of, you know, there is that, I think that realization of as, as much as I, I think for me, I do like precision training. I'm a perfectionist. I want to know that what I'm doing is kind of like the best that I can be doing in that moment. Um, but I also know that that's not going, that, that, that my clients don't care about that either. Um, and that my clients are not going to be able to reach that level of perfection that I might impose on myself. Um, and so being able to adjust that and really take the leash out of my own hands, like to stop using their dog to demo and to really be like here, like I have to work on my coaching skills. I think that's still where I put most of my continued education efforts as someone who struggles with social anxiety yet can hyper-focus very effectively on dogs and dog behavior. It's a fine line of oversharing and giving too much of the why and as opposed to saying, hi, here's a situation in front of me. Why don't you move to the left and try feeding from your right hand instead? You know, <laughs> and see how that goes. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'd say that's still my work in progress, but I know I've come light years from where I started on that. Well, and I think that this is such a good bridge into the fact that what we do is customized, right? Like, there is no cookie cutter, you leave training sessions with us and your dog knows X, Y, and Z, and they can like, quote unquote, do it no matter what, right? Like, I think that although we all approach like different behaviors and we have different services, I think the overarching theme is that we customize. We customize what we teach them, what we give them based on what they need, who they are in that moment, right? Because I think that, Over the years, I, you know, because everyone listening, you know, I work with reactivity and aggression, right? Like that's really my focus. And I've gotten called into aggression cases where 
there were other things at play that had to be addressed before I could even dream of doing behavior modification. Everyone, such a good conversation. So I broke it up into two parts because we talk about a lot. So be sure to tune in next week to hear part two of the panel discussion talking all about dog training and how we define what we do. We talk more about customizing our training plans and what our ethics are when it comes to behavior modification. So tune in next week to hear the second part of this conversation and be sure to check out the show notes. Several of the guests have been on the podcast before and we had amazing conversations. So you can listen to that episode too. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at agoodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at agoodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, It's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.